Welcome to the IAB UK podcast. Hello and welcome to the IAB UK podcast. From the IAB, I'm James Chandler. And just like every other outlet in existence, we're talking about the UK government this week. Specifically, the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill, better known as the DPDI Bill, sponsored by the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. That's DCMS, by the way. And hot off the back of our webinar, which went into all the detail on what it is, what we can expect, and exactly what it means for digital advertising, I sat down with Eduardo Istarin, who is global co-head of Hogan Lovell's privacy and cybersecurity practice. We talked about GDPR post-Brexit and how the UK's version could look different, what type of approach the new Secretary of State might take with the DPDI bill, and we even got into some entirely speculative what-ifs relating to consent in the metaverse. But I started with a provocation around the cookie consent notices that we all have a love-hate relationship with. <laughs> the cookie. Well, there's something we all love about the internet, and I think it has to be the cookie notice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it kind of helps this sense of anticipation that you want to access a website and you know you are only one click away from... No, but we're joking. But yes, it is interesting to see how a legal obligation has evolved in a way that has created this, in a sense, barrier that we are all trying to overcome as quickly as we possibly can. And I think the serious point about this is that, in a sense, defeats the purpose, which is essentially to give people the opportunity to control what is happening on their devices and the information that's being collected from their devices. So I think that is the more serious challenge we are facing here. Yeah. Well, let's take a couple of steps back. We've covered the DPDI bill previously. We've touched on it on this podcast, but I wonder if you would just give us a 101 explainer on exactly what's in it and what we can expect. Well, I was going to say you probably remember, but most people will not remember that (laughs) in in the early days of e-privacy, there used to be a notice and opt-out approach to cookies. So basically you were required to tell people, that cookies were being used and people could opt out. Fine. Then everything changed in 2009 and then the law became effective in 2011 when the EU introduced notice and consent. And it was in a sense a subtle drafting change. But from 2011 across the EU and now the EU plus the UK, we have a rule which we have had for over a decade now where, of course, the rule is that If information is being dropped on your device or being extracted from your device, any kind of information, then that can only lawfully happen with the consent of the user unless that activity falls within the scope of a couple of very narrow exemptions, one to do with the transmission of communications and the other one to do with the provision of a service that is requested by that user. So the law hasn't really changed for over a decade. It's just that we're still struggling to figure out how to make sense of it. And how much changes, or rather, how much doesn't change, given that we've exited from the EU and we'll have a sort of British version of GDPR? Should we expect massive swathes of change or not noticeable at all? First of all, the UK government obviously is now wanting to make something out of Brexit, and that is obvious that we would want to make something out of it. And 
in this context, it means that, yes, of course, the UK has the opportunity to say, well, we're going to revisit this whole issue of consent for cookies. And basically, we can do three things. We can look at it and say, oh, it's too much of a hassle to change it. Just leave it the way it is. Or we can go the other way and say, you know what, we don't need this at all. Let's just get rid of it all together. There are other countries around the world that don't have cookie consent. Why should we? Or you can go for the sort of the third way, which is you don't get rid of it all together, but you soften it or you change the situations where consent is needed by expanding, if you want, the scope of the exemptions. And that's what is being proposed by the UK government at the moment. The idea that these two narrow exemptions that I refer to would be expanded, although just a little bit. It's not like they are expanded massively. It's just for a couple of cases dealing with analytics, for example, or data security. Then the idea would be that consent is not needed because that type of cookie type technology serves a purpose that is good anyway. But there is also scope for the minister in charge of this area, so the secretary of the state, to going forward, making more radical changes. And obviously, we we don't know what those changes would be in the future, but that is the scope. So these two elements could effectively help the UK depart from EU law in a relatively measured way, Mm. but a departure nonetheless. And the second provision you talked about there, so that the Secretary of State could make changes to that without taking it back to Parliament and putting it in front of the House. Yes. So I think what happens with many laws is that you will have a primary law, which is an act of Parliament. So that means that the Parliament as a whole needs to vote. The majority of the Parliament has to be in favour of that law. When you have a party that is already more than half of the parliament, that's super easy because all you need to do is get your own MPs to vote in favor of your own proposal. So in a sense, that's not a difficult thing to achieve in most cases, but that is an act of parliament. And that has, in a sense, provides the strongest reassurance to the citizens of the country that this is the will of the people, if you want. Right. But what many acts of parliament include is the power of a minister, typically the secretary of a state, so the most senior person in charge of that particular department, to make regulations, typically it's regulations like a statutory instrument, where it is equally enforceable, so it has the force of law and regulators will enforce it and courts will will uphold that, Mm. but it doesn't need all of the MPs again to debate it and to vote in favor or against it. So it's just, it gives more flexibility. Of course, because there is a degree, I guess, less democratic involvement in the passing of that type of secondary law, that is usually left for things that are more perhaps mundane or operational, things like that. So it would be a little bit out of sync with the idea of the Act of Parliament to then have a statutory instrument, which is a secondary instrument, using more radical changes than the Act of Parliament itself. Yeah, got it. New government, new prime minister, new secretary of state, new cabinet. I mean, it's all very new. Parliament, I think at the moment, are spending lots of time 
swearing their allegiance to the new king. Then they're going to go on recess for conference season, so they might not actually sit again for a while. But Liz Truss, Prime Minister, has got a lot on her plate at the moment, as have the various departments, cost of living crisis, right? You know, all these sort of prevailing headwinds. Where do you think this sits in terms of priorities and the kind of the balance that perhaps the government might try to strike? I mean, they're sort of picking this up, I guess, from the previous government, and there'll be lots of stuff that kind of overlaps. Where does it sit, do you think, on their list of priorities? Well, I would say that for the UK government as a whole, anything to do with the digital economy is a top priority because the economy is the priority for the government and the digital economy is what is driving the economy. So for all those reasons, anything to do with data, the digital strategy of the UK is a top, top priority. Mm -hmm. I think what is happening at the moment is that the government is perhaps reassessing whether the direction of travel that was set up by the Boris Johnson government on this particular topic is the direction of travel that the Liz Trust government wants to follow. Yeah. And the answer that might be, yes, of course it is, or it's up to a point, let's just make these tweaks. So it could be that in a few weeks' time, the process that has been kind of paused, let's say, for now, because of the new government and, of course, the, the death of the Queen, that process will just carry on. It was started there this summer. Or that the government said, we would actually like to make some further changes to this proposal. Let's not move it forward just yet. Let's just make some changes, reintroduce the bill, a reform bill, and then take it from there. That is also possible. And of course, we've seen similar with another piece of possible legislation that was coming into order around HFSS, which was a big tenant of Boris Johnson's government, you know, fellow with COVID, decided he wanted to get the nation healthy and looked like and consulted for a long time on imposing some restrictions, particularly online with HFSS. And that stance softened slightly, but still perhaps a, a moving piece, no pun intended. I listened to, of course, we had you on our webinar on Tuesday, we're recording this on Thursday, when you were talking to Christy about the fundamental problem with the user experience is that every single site I go to, I have to consent. And actually, I'm not consenting, I'm just getting the box out of the way. And wouldn't it be easier if there was some centralized way of doing this that perhaps you only ask me once a week or once a month or once a year there seems some obvious benefits for doing that namely a better user experience but there might be some pitfalls in there as well particularly around opt-out for advertisers who are trying to target consumers Sure. I mean, so obviously the government is toying with this idea and one of the proposals is again as part of the changes to the privacy requirements around consent is that in the future, once again, the Secretary of the State could introduce a new way, if you want, of centralizing consent. So the premise of obtaining consent or when that consent needs to be obtained would remain or the situation where which require consent would not change but what would change is that a mechanism to centralize that consent would then be available with the effect of instead of having to then again click on the accept or my options or whatever else that uh, you are presented with on every single website then you have a much more uh, let's say seamless experience on the web because you are only presented with that option once. The question is, that once is 
How does that happen? Does it happen when you first download your browser? Does it happen on the 1st of January of every year? Does it happen the first time that you go to a particular website that uses a particular type of cookie? So that will need to be defined. But of course, the advantage of that for the user, of course, is that you only need to do it once. So I think no one would necessarily object to that from a user's perspective. The issue is that, of course, if someone opts out, they have opted out until the next time they need to give consent. So from the point of view of those that are not able to benefit from the consent, the opportunity to obtain that consent goes away for a long time. But the fundamental question is, do we still think that consent is the right way to regulate this issue? Because you can consent a hundred times or one time, mm. but are you really even consenting that one time? And in fact, if it's one time, imagine the responsibility <laughs> that you're placing on the user that's saying, yeah, yeah. in this particular moment in time, you are going to be asked to consent to all the cookies that are going to be served on all your devices over the next 365 years. Yeah. yeah. So I think, again, I'm exaggerating, but that's raise the issue of whether consent is still the right model to regulate the use of this technology. Yeah, it's a brilliant point. It's not one I thought, it's almost be careful what you, almost be careful what you wish for. The best bit about doing this podcast after the webinar is we get to look at all the questions that got put in, but you didn't have time to answer. So I'm going to go to a few of those, if you don't mind. There's a brilliant one about the metaverse, which perhaps we'll come back to. That can be our sparkling ending. But th there was a question around the deprecation of third-party cookies and people thinking that about e-privacy might not be relevant anymore as and when they go away, but it will be relevant for first-party cookies. And if you're storing any sort of information on a device, e-privacy is still going to matter. Yeah, I think the, what we need to remember is that, of course, we always talk about cookies and, uh, and I'm guilty as everybody else of talking about cookie consent or the cookie requirement and all that. When the law itself doesn't mention cookies, it, it never, it never has yeah, yeah. and it never will. And it, it's just because the cookie is the kind of a manifestation, if you want, of the type of technology that people understand. But the law, as I was saying a few minutes ago, is about regulating a the storage of information on the device so that when you go to a website, when you download an app, or indeed when you use a connected car, mm. that whoever is controlling that service or that website puts something on that device that then is able to access again in order to effectively identify the device and the behavior associated with that device. So it's the same. All we're trying to do here from a policy perspective is to regulate effectively the, if you want, the tracking mm -hmm. or the following how users use a particular device and the information that you gather from that behavior. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to regulate. So cookies may disappear and may be called I don't know, biscuits in the next generation. But they would still be regulated if the principle is the same, that this is information that is stored in your device and then being extracted from your device. And the connected car example is a brilliant one, actually. And I wonder if you go even further and you think about maybe, you know, devices, I think about the world of audio and podcasts, devices that don't necessarily have a screen where they can present you the options of do you consent or otherwise. Smart speakers, I guess, is another one. You know, if you only rely on 
someone consenting every time to do that. I mean, you get into a slightly nightmarish scenario with your smart speaker asking, oh, are you sure it's okay for us, to, you know, and every time you do it? So there might be a better way out there. Yeah, because, I mean, I think this is an important point you're raising because the internet is, as clumsy as it may be, creates a sort of an interface mm. that is easy to go and collect consent because ultimately, as annoying as a banner can be, all you need to do is click on that button. Okay. But if it's any other type of device that doesn't have that sort of interface, yeah. and maybe a car will have an interface because you have a dashboard, mm. but what if it's a pair of running shoes mm. or a jacket or a pair of glasses, anything that is connected to the internet that is generating information and that someone is extracting that information from that device. Imagine you put on some running shoes that are going to track how you run and you need the consent of the user, are they going to tell you as you lace up the shoes, oh, do you mind if we track you how you run so that we can uh, advertise the right pair of trainers for you? But it is equivalent of the cookie banner, but without the interface. So I think it goes back to the point I was making. Is this the right way of regulating the use of this technology? Because ultimately, you are actually putting the honors, not just on the developers of the technology, but the users to take a view on whether they accept that use of their of the information or not. And then for people to take a view from a policy perspective, you need to accept that people can take a view. That, so they, they are empowered yeah. in terms of the knowledge they have and the freedom they have and everything else that goes around it. They are empowered to take that view to say yes or no. Yeah. Here was me thinking we would be talking about the nuts and bolts of the DPDI bill, but I think we've got into some wonderful territory on when the internet sort of transcends screens and becomes into these other things like wearables and cars and etc. Eduardo, it's all we've got time for, but thank you so much. One for the webinar that you did with this other day that of course you can watch on catch up on ibuk.com. And thank you for giving me some time this afternoon. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. My pleasure. Eduardo Ustarin from Hogan Lovells there. He was brilliant, wasn't he? I loved the stress testing that he did around consent even being the right thing that we should be collecting, let alone the mechanic by which we get it. And as good as obtaining consent in this single place for a fixed period of time sounds, it has some fairly obvious pitfalls as well, some of which I've not even considered. But that's why he's got the incredible job title. And I haven't. If you want more information about the DPDI bill, e-privacy more generally, or any guidance relating to digital advertising policy and regulation, you can find an absolute treasure trove of information on our site at iabuk.com forward slash policy. And that's it for this week. Uh, Thanks very much for listening. IAB UK, building a sustainable future for digital advertising. 